Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. In April 1893, John Marshall, an immigrant and successful farmer on Sumas Prairie in British Columbia, was found dead lying sprawled across the veranda of his farmhouse. The farmer's face was a mess, his nose smashed in and cracked blood covering his forehead around a jagged black hole. The shocked neighbor who discovered the body rushed to summon the authorities. An autopsy, coroner's inquest, and murder investigation followed. Two days later, a handyman named Albert Strobel was arrested for Marshall's murder. Strobel was an un- unlikely killer, short and physically disabled. The young man the community knew was not capable of murder, and locals were shocked to imagine that Strobel could have killed the man who had treated him like family. But something had gone tragically wrong on the night Marshall died. Unraveling the mystery would take nine months and two lengthy trials that seized the attention on both sides of the Canadian-American border, splitting them into pro- and anti-Strobel factions. Newspapers devoted page after page of coverage, and throngs of spectators squeezed into the courtroom galleries. The first trial in New Westminster ended with the jury hopelessly deadlocked. The second in Victoria found him guilty and set an impending date for his execution. The heaviest heaviest hitters of B.C.'s political and legal establishment took part, including former and current premiers, an attorney general, and a future Supreme Court justice. When the second trial ended with a guilty verdict and death sentence, many in the public howled in protest, convinced that a young man had been condemned to die for a crime he did not commit. And the dramatic events would not stop there. With the condemned man sitting on death row, the case would take more twists and turns that would lead Albert Strobel to the shadow of the gallows. The book that we're featuring this evening is The Trials of Albert Strobel, Love, Murder and Justice at the End of the Frontier, with my special guest author, Chad Reimer. Welcome to the the program, and thank you very much for this interview, Chad Reimer. Well, thank you for having me on. Thank you very much. It's a very fascinating case, very, very interesting. When we set it in the time frame of the 1890s in Canada, along the Canada-U.S. border, Uh, tell us a little bit about... uh, the Sumas Prairie of British Columbia set the stage for uh, a little bit of the history of this area and just where this geographically is in on this Canadian-American border. Tell us where this is. Right. Um, today, it's uh, actually there's a town called Huntington, which is south of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And both of those are about a 45-minute drive east of uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And um, you come down out of Vancouver and you come off a a rise 
in the, the Fraser Valley, and you go down onto this, this prairie, Sumas Prairie. Um, and it's, uh, the events that took place are right, right along just as you come down onto the bottom of the prairie. Um, back, and, and right now at Huntington, it's, it's a border crossing. Huntington is the Canadian side of the border crossing, and then Sumas City is the American side. And a, and a railroad, a couple, a couple of railroads go straight north-south, connecting Mission to, across the Fraser River to north, and then going south into the United States. Um, in the 1890s, that prairie was very, very lightly settled. It's actually quite remarkable how recent... Uh, it, how recent it was that there were um, so few people around uh, on the prairie. Um, you know, so few white settlers, and of course the native peoples had been uh, set, pushed aside, dispossessed of the land, and pushed onto reserve lands in, in the Sumas Prairie. The dominating feature on the prairie uh, to the east was, was um, a wide lake, a lake that spanned from one side of the prairie along uh, Sumas Mountain to the other side of the prairie along Better Mountain, about four miles or six kilometers across, and then about six miles, nine kilometers long. Um, that was called Sumas Lake. That was there at the time. Um, it was drained in the 1920s. So that was a dominating, fe dominating feature to, to, you know, the one side. And then the other side is this sharp, escarpment uh, that that came down from from the west that's where the, the edge of the the um last ice age went and the events that that were happening that that we talk about um, happened on the western edge of that prairie and just after two years after the uh, the canadian pacific railway had built a um, spur line from mission which is on the north side of the Fraser Valley, straight, you know, built a bridge and then straight down south to hook up with the Northern Pacific Railway that came across uh, in in Washington State. Um, but, and the railway itself kind of sparked a bit of a boom, um, and then the boom kind of faded after a little while. But it, it mostly developed the Sumas City, on the American side, and so the Sumas City was was the town that that even all the Canadians on the north north of the border uh, they would go if they needed a doctor or if they wanted to go shopping they would go into Sumas City because there was no other real town around. I mean, Abbotsford what didn't emerge as a real town for quite a while. Chilliwack was across Sumas Lake. So these people, uh, the Sumas Prairie, it was, you know, their life was more north-south, and they went across the line as if the line didn't exist kind of thing. And actually, for many white, far white settlers, about half of them were actually Americans. So they thought, well, we don't have to recognize this line at all. So, um, and it, the... the Geography, topography, it was actually, it was a mixture. It was on the very edge of, of rich grasslands, which were pr produced because Sumas Lake 
grew every year with the floods and then and then went away and they pre- produced these these grasslands and on the grasslands you had the sheep the um cattle and dairy cattle beef cattle um by the time you get closer to where the railroad was and where all these events take place it was more marshy and boggy and bush and in bushy and and um so it was very very difficult to make it a go of farming and so the farmer like a victim we um john marshall um you know he he was one of the more successful actually um but it was still you know a hard slog for him um and you also had you know like every frontier you had the population the white population was very recent and you had people coming and going all the time um and Marshall had been there for 10 years, and he was an old-timer. And the, man, the, the young man arrested for his, his, uh, his murder, Albert Strobel, he also had, come, had been there, you know, almost 10 years. His family had come. And he had bounced back and forth across the border. He lived most, mostly in the B.C. side. Um, his family lost their property, and then... He had to, he, a year or two before he had moved back uh, into the American side, the Sumas City side. Um, but like I say, every day people were walking up and down, and, and there was no good road, so they used the railroad to walk up and down, um, going you know from Sumas Prairie and Canadian side to Sumas City. Um, and you know the events of the book. They're, you know, you're constantly moving back across, up and down that railway line, um, and it, it kind of, you know, it becomes a character in itself in the in the in the in the book that that line itself. It's connecting. It directly connects Albert Strobel's hotel that he's staying in to John Marshall's uh, property, um, which has a gate right at the railway yard railway uh, um, bed that. You know, you'd go off and go into his property, um, right. but I don't, that's kind of the economic and the and the physical setting for for the events. Now, tell us about the relationship between Albert and this uh, Portuguese immigrant, which uh, had difficulty. You know, had a thick accent, and uh, so tell us about this unlikely friendship and what that friendship entailed. Uh, yes, uh, they actually were quite, well, I don't know if close would be a good good term for it, but um, Strobel was one of the most frequent visitors to to uh, John Marshall's place. Um, he would come up and um, he would he would come up and and help with the with the chores in the house. Um, he would help with some of the chores around the the farmyard as well um they were both kind of outsiders in, in amongst the the Sumas Prairie community um Marshall because he was Portuguese and there was very strong racism uh at the time uh, for you know southern Europeans and Portuguese in particular um he actually came from the Azores Islands off of Portugal, so his accent would have been even more stronger, more regional Portuguese. Um, 
he was known as the old man and the old man that was killed, and yet he actually was only about 38 or 39. And it, it's kind of like he, the descriptions of him, you get the sense, well, this is kind of like an exotic guy, you know. We don't really know much about him, and, but, you know, so we can describe him the way we want. And then Strobel was an outsider, um, partly because of his family. I mean, his, he came from a broken family. His mother had died a couple, couple years, a few years before the events. He had um, a half dozen siblings that were still with, with him. His father um, kind of lost it after his, his mother died. He was a veteran of the Civil War, and um, uh, he, he was a German immigrant himself, um, had come to Illinois, and that's where uh, Strobel was, was born. And the family had come to, out west in the 1880s. And um, his father was very restless. He didn't stay at any one particular thing. He was continually going off, leaving the kids to take care of themselves. He had a, a, a problem with alcohol, as invariably so many did, because it was, um, well, you could buy very strong alcohol back then, unregulated. And, and he... Really, he disappeared by the time um, these events took place. And so his family was poor. um, Not that there weren't other poor families, but it was poor and it was parentless. And the kids were just trying to hold it together. And Strobel himself was a bit of an oddball. Uh, He, uh, of course, physically, he had had a a deformity of his right, right leg, that, that twisted it and then twisted his his foot in some some form. The, the, obviously, he wouldn't have been going to a doctor or a specialist to get a diagnosis, but he had been told it was an inflammation of his his bone, and so that that left him uh, quite. Uh, it left him disabled, and of course, at that time, it's like, oh, that's a. That's a, that that kind of defined him, right? And um, he he was, uh, you know, not not a big fellow to begin with, um, and so he was short, and then with his leg even shorter. And he 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 was, you know, what nowadays might be called developmentally challenged, or certainly emotionally challenged. He 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 was always referred to as the boy even though by the time of the murder, by the time of the murder, he was 20 years old. And, and at that time in that frontier society, uh, you know, a man at 20 years old is a man. You know, you're out of your family, you're making your own family and so forth. But he was seen as the boy. And in part because he, he just, you know, he was clever enough in some things, but he wasn't, wasn't quite there in others. And also, you know, emotionally, he was kind of, he, he, he was, you know, behind his, <laughs> behind the times with his, uh, his age and so forth. And so they were both outsiders. They kind of, you know, for, for Strobel, he, he didn't have a real home. And for, for, um, for uh, Marshall, he didn't have a family around. So they kind of, you know, it was kind of like a, 
you know, an uncle and a nephew type relationship that they, they, they developed. And, um, and they seemed to like each other quite, you know, as much, not that they got to know each other well, but that, that, that they liked each other's company. So. But, right. Yeah. Now, now tell us, tell us about the relationship. You talked about this, uh, delayed emotional and development where they called him just uh, the boy, but he had mm-hmm. recently been in a relationship. His, uh, his landlord was Margaret Bartlett. So he, rented a room from her, but she had three daughters, and one of them was Elizabeth, who was 12 years old. Tell us about this recent mm-hmm. love affair, and if it was approved or uh, condoned by Margaret. Tell us about this relationship and what it meant yeah. to Albert. Yeah, Elizabeth was the, I guess she was the third oldest of the the Bartlett daughters. and uh, There were eight Bartlett children, and uh, Margaret was the mother. Um, Elizabeth was uh, known to be, people around believed her to be 14 years old. And um, uh, government records show, though, that she is definitely 12. And, yes, the two of them did develop a relationship. At first, um, the mother, Margaret, wasn't crazy about it. Uh, the father in the situation, Charles Bartlett, was kind of, once again, he was another <laughs> father who was kind of out of the picture, not physically, but he, you know, was another guy. He just tried numerous things and he, nothing seemed to stick. He actually lived in, uh, north of the line in Chilliwack and Yale for a good while and, and ran a, a hotel that burned down. He forgot to get the insurance, so they were left with nothing. And so Margaret Bartlett moved the whole family south of the line, and she bought the hotel. So she was very much in charge. Um, he didn't stay at home very often. He passed out in the, in the bar and slept in the bar wherever he was. So, And she did eventually come around to, to the, to, you know, in the midst of the trials and the, the, the testimony she did come around um both elizabeth and albert claimed that they were engaged they were officially engaged and they said they had been talking about it with the mother the mother said well maybe i don't think they were officially engaged but they were you know uh, related they were in a in a relationship um and you know elizabeth what you should say well if at one point if the murder hadn't had happened by the they would have been married right mm-hmm. and i do address this and i say oh well, geez she's 12 years old can they get married and the answer is in law yes they can uh the the, the marriage laws for washington state where the marriage age was 18 for for a woman 21 for a man now that only applied if the parents of the daughter getting married protested. You know, if they said, "Well, no, we don't give her approval for to, to get married." If they don't protest, then there is there was no there was no other age limit for getting married. And right. the fact that she was thought to be fourteen was significant because uh, Margaret Bartlett got married at fourteen. Uh, the, the the mother of 
of J of the David Ayerly, who is this little budding sociopath that, that was uh, um, Albert Strobel's co-defendant in the first trial. She was 14 when she got married. Both of them, both Bartlett and Mark and um, Ayerly's mother were 15 when they had their first children. And um, um, Theodore Davy, who was the premier at the time, and he was one of the most impressive minds that BC had produced at the time, he married a girl that was 14 back in the 1870s, and she died. So it wasn't unusual on the frontier for, for girls at 14 to be married. Um, right. So nobody really raised, as I say, they thought, and the family kind of didn't protest about Elizabeth being thought of as 14, right? And right. Margaret didn't say anything. And from their perspective, you know, Margaret, you know, daughters were useful. Um, these families were big. Boys were useful on the farm, and daughters were useful in the house and raising the kids. And uh, when they didn't become useful, they wanted to marry the daughters off because they became, yeah. you know, dependent. <laughs> so marrying daughters off at, at 14 or 15 isn't a bad, a bad thing if you have other daughters to help around the house, which the Bartlett's did. Right. So this, this, this was not as unusual as you would think uh, it, it would mm -hmm. be. Sure. Let's talk about, as somebody talking about marriage, and, and they talked about an engagement, and so the mother knew, the father mm -hmm. knew, but at the time, he had no job prospects. He had talked about right. some money that he had, but it was complicated. He said he had money in a bank in New Westminster. I'll have you explain right. that briefly. We don't get too far into that. But the idea that he had yeah. no prospects for jobs, but he had approached a couple guys, a couple barbers, because his idea was that he would like to be a barber, someday open a shop. Right. So he did approach right. a couple people. But how serious was he in the approach with the first one? with the apprenticeship, and then the second one, what did he say in terms of trying to secure the barbershop uh, business from this right. gentleman named Carpenter? Tell us a little bit about his prospects about being a barber. Yeah, I, I think he was completely serious about being a barber, and it was one of his, you know, more realistic uh, plans. Um, he knew, you know, being a barber was a bit easier on his, his leg, of course. Um, you know, working behind a plow in a field uh, isn't the easiest thing to do when you, you, you know, you have to, your regular walking, you have to, to use a cane. Now, he, he did physical work, of course, because he had to. Um, didn't have any, it didn't have much of any. Um, school training and and so being a barber would have been a good a good thing for him um and the only problem is of course you know barbers come and go i mean the two that he approached the one the first fellow he gave uh, a, a his horse the two that it was the only asset that that Albert owned was his horse. Right. He gave him the horse to take him on as an apprentice. And that guy's shop burned down and he left. So then Carpenter opened a, a barber shop, 
And Strobel said, okay, I'll, I'll buy the, the, the barbershop from you um, with everything in it. Uh, and I'll also buy some, some household you know, things, maybe a sofa, chairs, that sort of thing, um, for, you know, and, and Carpenter said, well, the asking price is $250. And uh, Strobel said, well, that's fine. I have $500 in the bank, and, you know, I'll be able to pay you. Now, these talks apparently, like, uh, according to Carpenter, well, he's a dodgy character. According to Carpenter, um, the talks have been going on for a bit, right up until the day that Marshall, uh, that Strobel was arrested, and that Margaret Bartlett and Elizabeth Bartlett knew about these talks, knew about these plans. So from the sound of it, this kind of was the plan, that that Strobel was going to, to um, get the money to buy Carpenter's Barbershop. That would set him up, and that would, you know, be the basis for you know, him being able to support getting married to Elizabeth. So Margaret kind of knew about this, uh, and, and you know, that um, that would have been the plan. The only thing was, Strobel had no money. He said he had the 500 in the bank, but and he probably kind of believed it, but through some really um, dodgy real estate stuff, that his his older brother Albert's older brother had in, it involved been involved in um, his older brother then kind of passed on these heavily mortgaged property to him Albert and so Albert thought he had these properties um, I don't think he was aware that there were, there was a, a, a full mortgage on them and. Um, he signed, he ends up, the bank comes and asks him for the money. He ends up signing the property over. And then in his mind, he signs the property over but gets no money. And so he thinks the bank stole his money. Um, so that's what he was thinking about, yes, I have the money. Um, so that's kind of the picture where he just kind of doesn't get the, big picture. Uh, Strobel mm -hmm. doesn't. He doesn't understand that, well, actually, those properties weren't worth anything because there's a huge mortgage. Now, of course, his older brother probably, you know, if, if, he, if he did tell him about the mortgages, he, he had to have known that Strobel, Albert, wouldn't have understood very well what was going on. So his older brother certainly uh, shares some of the blame here, as does the bank in Sumas City, who, who threw its agent, like Albert, for, for quite a good ride uh, on, on this whole thing. So um, right. the money wasn't there. <laughs> they thought it was, I think, and the plan was there, and it wasn't a bad plan, but the money just wasn't there. Let's get to April 16th, and uh, George Hilliard, and uh, and also Albert, they're fishing at Marshall Creek, and it's named after John Marshall. Uh, yep. They get skunked fishing that day, so they stop at Marshall's for some milk, which is, he has a cow, and they'd stopped many times yep. before. And like you say, Albert's the kind of guy that visit him more than anyone else. So, as, And likely, as they are friends, they see each other all the time, and they're 
they're friendly and they act like friends and they can stop he can stop over for a glass of milk mm-hmm. what does uh marshall invites them for lunch um mm-hmm. what does he talk about to these two gentlemen to albert and his friend what does he say yeah, yeah actually it's it's not albert that, that that's that's there with hilliard um they come, uh, george and that comes back and tells albert about this meeting um, right. It's actually uh, Elizabeth Al- Elizabeth Bartlett's younger brother, George. Uh, yes, uh, George George Bartlett. So you got George Hilliard, who's you know not, I think he's around nineteen. He's an English, you know, he's an immigrant from England. Uh, and then you've got George Bartlett, who's eleven or twelve. The two of them go down to fish, as you say, in Marshall Creek, and yes, named after John Marshall. Uh, it's in behind. Uh, Marshall's house, and they they as they've done before, because uh, Marshall's a jovial enough fellow. He he gives them some milk, and then he he wants the company, so he asks them to stay for lunch, which they do. And he gets talking about Marshall does. He gets talking in a very boastful way about his girlfriend, the girlfriend that he has, and Hilliard kind of eggs him on and in a teasing way, right? Because it would be like here's this guy's doesn't speak very good English. I'm going to kind of, like, needle him along. And so Marshall starts talking about, yeah, I, you know, I've got my a girlfriend, and, you know, I'm going to go buy her a dress, and, and you know, I have the money for it. And, and Marshall goes off and gets his, this leather uh, sack, a bag of gold coin, of coins, and he spills them out in, on his hand and half a dozen or so $20 coins and uh shows them to the boy boys and they're just you know of course their eyes just like light right up at 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 this and um they finish up the lunch and you know marshall's happy with himself bragging about these things and and george hilliard and george bartlett go back to the hotel and george bartlett is actually albert strobel's roommate so it's Ah. Strobel's renting a, a house in, a hot, in Margaret Bartlett's hotel, the city hotel, and uh, there's the two beds. And so George Bartlett is on one bed and Albert Strobel is in the other. And so they come back and, you know, they tell Albert all about this meeting that they had with, with Marshall. And they told him, certainly they told him about the money. And, and, and I'm, it's pretty guaranteed they would also have told him about you know marshall talking about his girl and um so albert you know knew knew these two things uh, which would be very important in 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 the events that that happened uh you know over the next few days absolutely let's get to what happens you have a neighbor named ira Earhart. And around 9 p.m., he hears a dog barking, and he thinks it might be yeah. from next door. From Marshall's, he might be, he's a trapper, so he he thinks it might be a bear in one of the traps, but he is not going to go over there. There's not enough yeah. for him to say, i got to go over there. So he goes over there right. the next morning, uh, just mm-hmm. after dawn, and to have a little bit of milk for his dog. Get, again, get some milk. What does he find? Mm-hmm. Uh, he finds... Uh, John Marshall sprawled out on the on the veranda of um, his 
cabin, Marshall's cabin. Um, he, Marshall's head was uh, propped up. He's on his back. Marshall's head is is um, propped up on the sill of the the door, and his and his body, his feet, are pointed outwards. So so uh, you know, and his feet are hanging off the edge of of the veranda, and. Um, Earhart comes close enough. He doesn't come and touch the body or see if he's alive or anything like that. But he he comes close enough and he he sees the the nose had been, you know, there's he thought at first it was mud, but it was dried blood all over his his front of his face, um, and you know a dark spot on his forehead and stuff. And he thought he thought that Marshall had been uh, clubbed to death. So. He heads off. He heads off um, down the, down the CPR line down to the Huntington Rail Station. That's where they have a, the telegraph and everything to to let you know to let people know what he what he's found. Right. Now, what do he call? He contacts authorities, and you have uh, mm-hmm. a couple lawmen, uh, Moresby is involved here. Yep. Tell us what what police find from their the initial examination of the crime scene and uh just tell us who's involved with this investigation and how police proceed. Yeah. So so what happens is that the um Earhart informs the the station master at at the Huntington station. So this is, you know, this is like at, at dawn first thing in the morning. And uh, the station master, uh, there's no police in the area. <laughs> you know, there's not a single constable between New Westminster and Hope and Yale. So he, he uh, the station master telegraphs New Westminster, and William Morrisby is, is both the warden of the provincial jail and also the acting um, Acting superintendent of police on the mainland. The main super, the real superintendent is in Victoria, and Moresby gets in touch with uh, with uh, a former sergeant in the, the British Army by the name of Pittendry, George Pittendry, who's the coroner, and they've worked on cases before. So Moresby and Pittendry jump onto the the next train. And um, you know, two three hours later, the train goes New Westminster to Mission Mission down. They get off at at uh, uh, Marshall's um, place. The, the two of them, and and Moresby is is of course the one in charge of now in charge of the investigation. When they when they get to Marshall's place, what they see is is like a couple dozen men milling around, walking around the place, and, you know, stomping all over the, the yard and a, a bunch huddled up on, a, a bunch of men huddled up on the veranda, uh, looking over Marshall's body, which which somebody had thrown a, a, um, a coat onto. So Morrisby comes up, he, he, you know, I don't know if I don't think he he was the one to use oaths under his breath, but he he was not happy about all these people traipsing around. He comes up and he starts investigating. Takes the 
the the, the um, blanket off of off of Marshall's body, and he investigates. He sees he sees a hole in the the, the um, forehead of John Marshall, um, right above the eyebrow, left eyebrow. And um, he turns him over, and he notices, of course, too, the, the broken nose. He turns him over and sees a, 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 another hole, jagged hole, in the lower, uh, the, the, the part of where the neck joins, joins your um, back or shoulders um, at, at the, base of the, the base of your neck. And he thinks, oh, you know, that it might be the exit wound of, from the hole in the, in the front of his head. So he looks around, but he can't find any bullets on the veranda or in the walls or whatever. Um, not a lot of blood. He was quite surprised. There's, there's almost no blood. Uh, there's, you know, a pool of it where, where Marshall's head was. But other than that, there's no real much blood around. And he goes in and um, he glances around the inside, and he doesn't really do an inspection of the inside. Um, the fellow who had taken charge uh, was a local justice of the peace, and he told him, Morrisby that they had, he had done a, a quick, in, uh, he had done an, a search of the house and found a couple of leather pouches of money, one with coins and another with, with, um, with dollar bills. Oh, with, yeah, with big bills from the Bank of British Columbia. Um, oh, yeah, and Morrisby, on Marshall's body itself, Morrisby had found a, a pouch that had, was lying on, on, on Marshall's stomach, a pouch with about $10 in it, along with his pipe. So that it, somehow it, it had either been taken out of his pocket, the pouch and that, or it had come out of his pocket when he fell. And Morrisby, you know, is he's, he doesn't look much at the crime scene. Notices, you know, uh, notices the, the, the thing he noticed most was um, the the kitchen table had been uh, set for two. There were a couple of plates and that. There were leftovers on the table. Uh, the chairs had been tipped over. The two chairs, as if. People had just gotten out from supper, so it's it's obvious two people had been sitting down having supper. Um, the, there's always one curious clue that that sticks out, and, the, and this this and this uh, crime scene there was a a pot of boiled potatoes uh, stranded halfway between the stove and the table. So uh, and it was upright and everything, so he couldn't figure out how that got there. Nobody ever did. Um, Marshall uh, Morsby then heads out, and he has to go back down to the Huntington Station and start organizing his investigation and notifying his superiors and so forth. And that that starts his investigation uh, going. Um, while Coroner Pittendry, of course, the the system is that the coroner is there. Um, he pull he pulls a jury of a half dozen or so. Uh, people from close around, and they hold they hold a coroner's inquest. Um, but that night right. they view the body, and the next day you have the official coroner's inquest, and that those two things get the investigation going. Right. 
Now, you talk about uh, Moresby taking over this investigation, and uh, a person named David Lucas, um, Mm -hmm. a private investigator, getting involved. And also, there had been someone named William Porter that uh, spoke to Moresby, and he had been ditching with Strobel at Mm -hmm. the Marshall Farm, I believe. So, And Porter believed that, uh, or suspected, that Albert was involved. And so how do Mm -hmm. Lucas and Moresby proceed with questioning Albert Strobel? Right. Um, David Lucas is a, you know, he's he's one of those characters that, that, uh, as a writer, historian, true crime writer, you love to have on the scene. You know, right. he was he was just like straight out of, as I say in books, straight out of central casting, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, as if Wyatt Earp had, had walked onto the uh, onto the stage, and and um, in a lot of very similarities because Earp himself respected the law only as much as was convenient. Um, Lucas was uh, living in in Sumas City. He moved there a few years earlier, and he he actually was the first marshal of the city. Uh, at first, he was paid, you know, properly by the city council, but with the economic bust of the, the, the previous year, the city council had to, you know, they couldn't pay him full time. Um, he had, you know, he did bit work, you know, if he arrested somebody for, um, you know, a city violation, then he, he you'd get some money for that. So he had to go back to selling milk and, and so forth. But he had been the marshal of Sumas City, um, and he actually had experience as a private investigator because his brother, Lucas's older brother, had run one of the, the um, more successful private investigator companies on the West Coast. You know, like the Pinkertons, but not as big. Uh, and the, the his his older brother was in. Well, actually, Albert, I mean, um, Lucas himself had various scrapes with the law themselves up on charges um, for. Well, his brother for you know um, bribery and and you know mishandling client funds and kidnapping and all these things. Um, so he, you know, David Lucas learned all these the tricks uh, of the trade from his brother. And when he was marshal of Sumas City, he was kind of allowed to do, uh, a, you know, what he wanted to, to, to keep the peace. Because in the boom years, there were all kinds of, you know, bars and brothels and gambling houses and everything in Sumas City. And, and the, count, the city councils thought, well, this, this guy, David Lucas, he's a perfect guy for this. You know, he'll go after, you know, he doesn't much know about, you know, rights of the defendant and so forth. And those don't really matter that much. Um, so actually, Moresby was quite relieved. To, he, he didn't know uh, um, Lucas from before, but he met Lucas at Marshall's house. Lucas had gone down there in the morning, and Lucas filled Marsh, uh, Morrisby in on everything and so forth. And at, from that time on, the two of them then go back, they, they go down to the Huntington station. 
set up headquarters in the Huntington Hotel. And from that point on, the two of them worked together in the investigation of, of, of Strobel. And they pretty much, from that time, Strobel was their primary, uh, um, was their primary uh, suspect in that. Let's use this as an opportunity just to stop for a second to talk about our sponsor, which is FabFitFun. Discover why over 1 million women are obsessed with this seasonal subscription box service. In every FabFitFun box, you'll receive 8 to 10 full-size items that range from beauty to home decor to apparel to jewelry and beyond every season. The Spring 2020 box has been revealed and is now on sale for a limited time. My wife Lisa is always excited about getting another FabFitFun box. This time, she ordered the Makeup Finishing Spray from Scandinavia, and she loves it. Now it's part of her daily routine, essential, she says. She also chose Glow Wrinkle Treatment by Revive Light Therapy and Rapid Collagen Infusion by Murad Resurgence. She already uses the goat milk moisturizing cream by Kate Somerville, and she has incorporated these amazing FabFitFun products in, into her everyday health routine. She's been hitting the gym three days a week, feeling and looking healthier, and with her FabFitFun beauty and health products, she's looking and feeling even better. Thanks, FabFitFun. Now, these are just some of the products she's, Lisa chose for herself. The boxes are customizable. If you just want to get surprised, though, the FabFitFun team will curate a selection of products just for you. FabFitFun is happiness delivered straight to your door each season. Choose from a variety of beauty, fashion, and wellness products to customize your very own spring box. It retails for $49.99, but always has a value over $200. Use coupon code MURDER for $10 off your first box at www.fabfitfun.com. Use coupon code MURDER for $10 off your first box at www.fatfitfun.com. Now, Chad, we were talking about the build-up, the impetus for Moresby and with the help of David Lucas to be able to arrest Albert Strobel for the murder of, of Marshall, of uh, so what does it take to be able to you you talk about this ruse that they did to lure him from from the US side to the Canadian side tell us how they did this mm-hmm. and what was the ruse Yeah um uh yeah I mean one of the advantages Moresby saw of course in having David Lucas as his unofficial partner was that um you know right from the start they they suspected Strobel because Strobel had been seen that day, the day of John Marshall's murder, when he was ditching with uh, William Porter. Um, he, he had flashed his his revolver. He had he carried a revolver with him, and he had uh, been seen with a revolver. He he was believed to be the last one to to see Marshall uh, alive. <clears throat> so. Moresby sends Lucas down into Sumas City because, of course, Moresby himself, his authority was only uh, north of the line. And Lucas is able to, to, to 
he picks up some cartridges from uh, spent cartridges and live cartridges from Strobel's room and outsider's room. He tricks Strobel into uh, uh, handing over his gun, <laughs> which which would be the most decisive uh, piece of evidence. And then um, he he goes down at one point, uh, and Strobel is outside. Uh, talking to some friends, and and Lucas comes up and he starts talking to him, and and Strobel says, "Oh, you're here to arrest me, aren't you?" And Lucas says, "No, no, no, oh no, I'm not." And so Lucas starts talking to him about the the, the investigation, and he's teasing him with with you know information about how they're going and how it's going and so forth. And as as he's doing this, they're walking south, uh, and before Strobel knows it, they're in front of the Huntington Hotel on the Canadian side. And and uh, Lucas says, oh, why don't you come in and, and have a drink? Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll treat you. And Strobel doesn't want to do that, but he's finally convinced. And he gets a, you know, a strawberry wine or some, some kind of very soft drink, and Lucas gets his, his, his bourbon. And then they come outside, and Strobel thinks, oh, good, you know. I can go home now. And then as a, you know, a couple steps walking back, uh, Mor- William Morrisby comes up behind him and puts his hand on Strobel's shoulder and arrests him there, then and there for the murder of, of John Marshall. Um, right. So obviously this whole thing had been choreographed beforehand between Morrisby and, and Lucas to lure Strobel across the line so that Morrisby could arrest him. How is it that they get the? How does he trick him to get his gun? What's what's the, again the ruse to talk about the gun? That's a very interesting. Yeah, the gun. Exception. So you know, one of these these Lucas is going back and forth, back and forth, uh, talking to Marsby at the Huntington Hotel, going into Sumas City to investigate, and during one of these, he's talking with with Strobel, just outside the the city hotel, and. Um, the coroner's inquest hadn't really come uh, happened yet, um, and you know autopsy results and so forth. But uh, Lucas says, "Oh yeah, I've just heard from the doctor that um, that the, the the gun that that killed Marshall was a, a 44 caliber." And and Strobel lights up and says, "Oh oh well, that that leaves me out. Know, I, I only have a a 38 caliber." And Lucas says, "Well, well, can I see it?" And Strobel, you know, he's thinking, "Oh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll go get it and show him and, and convince him it's not the gun." So he goes up to his room, comes back down with the revolver, and he, he shows it to to Lucas. And Lucas takes it, looks at it, sees that you know a couple have been fired, and uh, you know he could see that a couple of cartridges had, had been fired and couple were still in there, and he snaps it shut and he puts it in his pocket. And Strobel says, you can't do that. You can't take my, my revolver. And, and Luke says, oh, well, I'm just collecting everybody's around here. And at that point, he turns around and goes down to, back down to Huntington Hotel. Um, and, of course, that revolver would be you know, the mm-hmm. centerpiece of, of the, the prosecution case against Albert Strobel. In, in the trials. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Let's talk about this gun just briefly. Um, We've we got to talk about this trial because, of course, he's arrested, and we will have to talk about his nemesis, this very interesting David Franklin Ierly. But just, mm-hmm. just briefly, tell us about the state of the gun. This, this is an ordinary gun, and at the time of uh, the term of ballistics expertise uh, centered around that all guns like this, especially this common gun, were rusty. Just tell us briefly yeah. about this gun and uh, the, the rustiness of it. And it's that's and it's yeah. importance. It was a a, a a cheap, you know, generic gun, trade gun. Uh, it wasn't a Colt or a, or a Smith and Wesson or anything like that. Uh, five bullet revolver, uh, thirty eight caliber, which was had by that time become the most uh, common caliber for a for a revolver. Um, it would have been fairly short barreled and you know Strobel got it there's never he would never have cleaned it he didn't have the the proper cleaning tools nor would he know how to clean it because he never had a gun before he got it from a friend of his and so who knows when it would have been cleaned before and it was carried outside and inside and, and if those guns aren't oiled and cleaned properly they build rust uh, rust and particularly rust in, in the in the barrel and so most guns in the you know the witnesses have been say that most guns in the hands of you know just your regular people Joe the regular uh, people would would have rust in the barrel of some sort and if it builds up what happens is that the rust um, leaves marks on any bullets that are shot from the gun. And it, it was, at the time, it, gun experts, ballistics experts, did not know. They knew that r- the rifling in a gun left marks on a, on, on, a, on a bullet. But they didn't know that, you know, it was like a fingerprint, that no two barrels left the same marks on a, on a gun. You know, we're familiar with that now, too, right? What do the ballistics mm-hmm. tests say? And, you know, um, do, they, do, the, the, do the marks match? And that wouldn't come until the 1920s. Extensive, extensive research that would show that, that uh, no two bullets fired from different guns would have the same marks. So uh, what the Victorian ballistics experts and they were there were no trained ballistics experts they were just gunsmiths right. they would they would try to match guns by saying well you know this one's heavily rusted and i see these rust these rust marks on the bullet you know from i, I test fired one and there's a similar marks made by the rust on that one as the one that was dug out of you know john marshall's body and that that was right. how the the, the whole, you know, the, the ballistics um, worked at that time. Let's get to this David Franklin Ierly. Why he's this? What is the relationship be- between him and uh, Strobel? And how does it come? And for what reason, possibly, would this person confess? And what did he confess to? Yes, um, David Ierly was 14 years old. Uh, he was the oldest son 
of uh, of early family, which had moved there in the 1890s. Um, his mom was sick, and she was away, and the sisters were away. So he was living in the house with his dad, who was a hardworking uh, carpenter, handyman and, and things, and his two younger uh, brothers. And Ayerly, um I mean, like I say, he, 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 he was a disturbing little fellow. He, um, and he took it into his head to torment uh, Strobel as much as he could, pelting him with rocks all the time. And, of course, Strobel could never catch him because of his leg. But at, at some point, Airely decided that he, was, he wanted to confess to the crime after it happened. And he said that he, he told Morsby, and then uh, he told Morsby that, that Strobel had come the night of the murder, and, and the two of them had, had gone up to Marshall's place, and Strobel had gone in. He, Airely was outside, heard a couple of shots, and Strobel came back with some money, and they, they headed back. Um, for Morsby, this was it, right? This was the, the clincher. And he, of course, arrested Airely for being a, a, an accomplice to the murder and robbery. And the first trial went was a trial against Strobel and Airely. So even though the two of them were were, were enemies, they they um, faced the, the 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 charges together during the first trial. Uh, by which time Airely had withdrawn his confession, this lengthy confession that he had given to Morrisby, and he had told another, like while they were waiting in prison, he had told another prisoner the reason why he concocted this story was he thought that you know Morrisby would bring him to New Westminster and put him up in a nice hotel and pay him $3.50 a day, for yeah. being being a witness, and um, so that something wasn't quite right in this guy in this guy's yeah. mind, and uh, he, he, but it it added in a, a very fascinating twist to the whole to the whole thing. Um, now, in the first trial, it all falls apart. I mean, this guy gets up on on the stand. Um, oh no, he he he, he yeah he um, he can't go. He, he can't. Sorry. The law had just changed so that now defendant defendants could testify at their own trial. Right. Up until then, defendants couldn't. And so right. he gets up in the stand, and it, it's pretty obvious from the get-go that this this guy just full of, full of it, right? His story is completely concocted and so forth. And so the, the Crown drops the charges against him. Um, but that harms their case so much that in the first trial, the, ju the jury is a hung jury. It, it, they can't decide on the charges against Strobel, mostly because Airely had so screwed up the, the Crown's case. You talk about the first trial, though, with, with the ability for a defendant to take the stand in his own defense. You write that the jurors at that time expected, because of this law, that they expected the defendants to take the stand. So if they didn't, so it wasn't that you, you, you didn't have to, but if you didn't, the jury would look unfavorably upon the defendant because of it. And Strobel, oh, very much. 
testified at the first trial as well. Yes, and, and like you, yes. you know, like you say, in this trial, he was uh, represented by a very competent attorney named Ollie Morrison. And as you write, the kind of vigorous defense that he employed at this trial was unusual at the time. And you say that that the, the judicial system um, wanted a, a, a much more decorum to the. Mm-hmm. To, 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 the, uh, to the proceedings in court. And so that right from the very beginning, the judge, uh, McCrate, looked unfavorably on Morrison for his tactics in defending Albert Strobel, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, that was more at play in the second trial, but where Morrison, um, Morrison had to become very aggressive in the second trial. The first trial... Right. He he was Morrison was a sharp uh, uh, attorney. He was when we think of a of a defense lawyer, uh, you know, kind of like a pit bull. Um, he he fit that mold very much, mm-hmm. and that that was his his natural ability. Back then, that was frowned upon because, of course, you know, the court of law has to be respectful, and, and everybody's respectful, and so forth. Um, and that that style would would really come into play more in the second trial than in the in the first. Um, but yes, I mean, putting putting Strobel on the stand, in a sense, uh, this was the first case that Morrison tried where his defendant went to the stand. So he wasn't experienced in this, but he did know. I mean, these. These, it's the 1890s, and it's like, well, if you're innocent, you have nothing to hide. I mean, people still say that, and I can't believe that they do, because it's just not true. Everybody has something to hide. Um, that's our right to. Um, and, you know, the the farmers and the merchants that sat on the jury said, well, we want to... It, it, Guilt or innocence is almost more about your, you know, are you a moral person or not? And if you're a, you're a moral person, you'll get up there and you'll defend yourself. And all, in all the other trials at the assize, um, the defendants got up and and testified. Even in the the trial, and actually the trial that happened just before, when the guy was obviously guilty, and there was no chance of him getting off, uh, even in that case, he. He got up and and and, and testified, um, and Strobel did. It was a, a long test, and he did actually did surprisingly well given his his limitations. Um, uh, but Davy, and this was Theodore Davy's second time he had a witness in the uh, defendant in the in the, in the box. He was very good, um, but it just like the case just was sputtering. And uh, at that point, so it, it deserved to. Things, it, no, go ahead. Sorry, it deserved to have an acquittal because of of Ireley's, uh confession and and poor performance on the stand, but also that it it yeah. tied Strobel to the murder and without without with the acquittal uh, with the throwing out of the charges against Ireley, then it it seemed preposterous to to have it connected. Uh, use that same evidence that's been discredited to then convict mm-hmm. him of this murder. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, at the same I mean, time, they used, they, 
Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yep. They used the, I mean, they, they had to fall back on the gun, right, matching the gun, and a test was done. A, a bullet was fired from that gun, and then that bullet was compared to the bullet that came out of Strobel, of Marshall's uh, neck, and um, the Crown argued, you know, it was close enough. It, you know, they're a match, and if they're a match, then he's guilty. And so they fell back on, on, on that. But, you know, in that day and age, um, direct evidence, you know, he's, they talk about direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. To, nowadays, what we think of as direct evidence is physical evidence. You know, that bullet, matching the bullet to the gun, is direct evidence. Back then, the notion of direct evidence is eyewitness evidence. Um, and so when the direct evidence, that is, Airlie's eyewitness testimony, when that falls apart, their case falls apart because their direct evidence falls apart. So um, it was a different legal climate very much at the time. Mm -hmm. You have Theodore Davy too, uh, learning from this first trial as well. Um, and and being able to use for the second trial and and as you write in the book it's very surprising to see the trial uh scheduled for so soon they, there was a possibility yes. that the trial would be delayed for six months they said let's change this venue let's take it from new westminster to victoria you know across to the island to victoria and at the same time uh what was interesting is that strobel with this deadlock jury he thought he was acquitted that's how mm -hmm. stunned this guy was about what was going on so he he actually thought that this was a, a big victory for himself but this next trial was scheduled for two weeks only two weeks later wasn't it yes yes so now what changes in this second trial in terms of both people being prepared because some of the similar uh, witnesses and evidence uh, w was still germane to this second trial, very much the uh, about the guns, about the bullets being found by David Lucas. Tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. the the David Lucas uh, discovery of these bullets and what was questionable about that, and what Ma Ollie Morrison was limited by in terms of hiring a gun expert and what really qualified as expertise in firearms at that time? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, all of the important evidence was, uh, used in the case, the physical evidence, was collected by um, David Lucas. And it was just collected, taken, he stored it for two weeks in a trunk and then handed it over to Moresby. And the really question, the, the, the evidence that raised the eyebrows of, of Morrison was, uh, were the two empty cartridges that, Morrison, that Lucas found beneath the window of, of, a, of um, Strobel's hotel room. Now, it had been raining. This is November or December. Uh, you're back in Ontario, so you get snow. We get rain. And it had been raining, yeah. and the streets were muddy. And somehow, Lucas found these two empty cartridges uh, right underneath 
uh, Strobel's window, um, lying in a kind of a, you know, wet mud. They were lying right on top of the mud, and they were, they were clean, bright and clean. So one, they were clean after all this time out there in the mud, and two, nobody, you know, the police had inspected this alley before, and they they hadn't found these cartridges, and that becomes an issue. Of course, Morrison brings it up uh, in both trials, especially in the second trial, that uh, where he accuses Lucas of planting them, of planting those two cartridges, and those those become the cartridges that you know in the jury's mind. Uh, or the question is, of course, well, these are the cartridges that that um, Strobel would have taken out. It's a revolver, so when you, f- you fire it, the cartridge doesn't eject, as opposed to like an automatic uh, um, handgun. The cart, the empty cartridge stays inside the gun, and so the the, presum- the crown was arguing, Strobel took the two the two cartridges, empty cartridges that he had shot. Marshall with, took him out of the gun and threw him outside his window. Um, Morrison is saying, well, you know, they're clean, they're sitting on top there, these, these have been planted. And um, <laughs> he, he, like I say, you know, Lucas just, he's a character that keeps giving in a story. Um, he's asked, well, what made you look in, in the alley at this time? Because Lucas was going all around Sumas City in the day, two, three days after the, the shooting, looking for evidence. And he was, he was asked, well, what made you look in the alley at this time? And he said, well, he had dreamed, about, he had dreamt about it. He had dreamt yeah. about the, the cartridges yeah. sitting in the alley. And sure. um, Morrison just, you know, when, when he said that, it was just uh, you know, quite the reaction. He asked. He asked. Uh, he asked Lucas, "Well, what, what religion are you, Mister Lucas?" And he said, "Well, I used to try being a Christian, um, but I'm not a spiritualist. I, now, now I'm uh, now I'm uh, uh, um, now I belong to the the Odd Fellows." So it, it was it was quite the funny funny inter- exchange. Now, with this here, you have with fascinating is Judge Walken's behavior at the second trial. Now, you write yes. that it's interesting because this is new territory where you have a, a defendant testify on the stand in his own defense. So Albert Strobel got up, and they had the benefit, uh, Davy, Theodore Davy had the benefit of his first confession or his first appearance so that that was transcribed. So he was he had Strobel off balance with the little gaps or inconsistencies that he had in his in his in his testimony. But what's most important and surprising and shocking was that Judge Walken basically interrupted Morrison, which he was now really peeved at, because he said that mm-hmm. Morrison was was uh, denigrating these respectable witnesses' uh, character and, and, and their credibility was questioned. So what he did, in effect, was not allow Morrison to give, to allow a direct examination of Albert Strobel, and in effect, interrupting constantly, as you write, he acted like a cross-examination, the judge mm-hmm. acting as a cross-examiner rather than the prosecution itself. 
Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about this behavior and uh, how un- un- unusual it was. Yes. Um, I mean, it was... It, Strobel's testimony was one of the two decisive factors in the second trial. The other was a more convincing link between his revolver and one of the bullets in, in Marshall. Cause Davey had done his work better on that, and that evidence was presented better. But the other decisive part, and Davey admits afterwards, was, was uh, Strobel's testimony. The, the first iffy thing, eye-raising brow, was when Wacom allowed uh, Strobel's full testimony from the first trial when he allowed for it to be read, three hours of reading, into the record in the second trial. So not only did Davey have access to that you know, transcript, but now the jurors heard his testimony in trial number one. So when, when Strobel then now has to get onto the stand to defend himself, and he's kept on the stand for, for um, you know, I think eight or nine hours over two days. Um, and literally the stand, he wasn't allowed to sit. And witnesses weren't allowed to sit, except for women witnesses, that were, women and girls that were brought in to, to testify. And um, during that testimony, um, you know, they, it, most of it was taken up, four or five hours were taken up by uh, 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 Davey, and the rest of the time was taken up by Wacom questioning, the, the judge questioning Strobel. Morrison got very little time to, to uh, question him. He, he, would, he would set up and say, like, start Strobel going with, his, with the story, and then a few minutes in, Wacom would start directly questioning Strobel. So during the time when Strobel is supposed to be questioned by his own defense counsel and and have the opportunity to give his version, during that time, Wacom intervened and took over the questioning and, you know, on each step and each of the details. And then... Davy, it was Davy's turn to cross so-called cross-examine. So, mm-hmm. of those nine hours, almost all of it was cross-examination by the judge and cross-examination by by the the the, um, the crown counsel. Mm-hmm. And you know, very very little questioning examination by his own counsel. Uh, and the reason is that there are no precedents. This, this right. was the second trial in British Columbia. Oh, well, now it's the fourth, third or fourth trial where the defendant is testifying. There's, the new criminal code didn't, didn't specify what the rules were when a defendant was testifying. And there was no common law precedent that, that said, well, you know, um, the judge can't just step in and, and grill like that. So mm-hmm. there, there, there were no legal protections uh, right. uh, as, uh, it, that would guarantee the defendant the right to just unimpeded give his version of events. Mm-hmm. 
Now let's let's talk about the verdict and uh, what happens with this case. Obviously, he's convicted, but tell us about the public reaction and about the press reaction to this verdict, and also the reaction from Margaret Bartlett, Elizabeth Bartlett, and from Strobel himself. Yeah, you know, the reaction to the verdict was, um, amongst the public, it was actually quite split. Amongst, in the gallery of the, the courtroom itself, you had boos as well as cheers. Uh, amongst, uh, uh, you know, readers in Victoria, New Westminster, or whatever, who were who following the trial, you had a split as well. Um, and as soon as the verdict came down, there was there were moves to start a petition for an appeal. Um, and the newspapers themselves oh, were strongly like they actually did a very very good job and even-handed job of of presenting the testimony without comment. So you had these long long columns of the t- the trial coverage where it was fairly accurate. Um, but once, once the verdict came in, they, you know, they were able to say, yeah, we told you so. We, we said he was guilty from way back. And, you know, uh, so all of the press was supported the verdict. Uh, half of the public did, half didn't. Uh, Margaret Strobel and Liz, uh, Margaret and Elizabeth Bartlett were, were, you know, Elizabeth Bartlett collapsed crying. Uh, Margaret Strobel uh, as well, uh, Margaret um, Bartlett as well, sorry. Strobel himself didn't react at first, and then as he was being carried out, it kind of hit him that that he had never believed up in the, to the point that he would be convicted because he he thought that he could talk his way out of, uh, out of everything. Um, but as he was being carried out, he started you know, yelling and screaming and protest, oh, it doesn't matter, but, you know, you know, it, it's okay, it doesn't matter, and and so forth. So he, he, he it finally hit him, and he, he, he showed some, some emotion and de- defiance in the face of, uh, of the verdict. So that, that was the immediate reaction to the verdict. Now, this, we talked about uh, Strobel, uh, being emotionally delayed or slow, he meets with Elizabeth because this love of his life, and we, we you had mentioned before that he was told by the mother Margaret that that if this wouldn't have happened, he would have been married. You know, so talk about the conversation and talk about the conversation that Elizabeth had with uh, Strobel and what she asked him, and who was also listening at that same time, and what did they do as a result? Yes, Elizabeth um, visited Strobel the day, I believe it was the day after the, the conviction. I uh, visited him in, in prison. He, he was kept apart from the, uh, uh, the regular population on the equivalent of death row in, in uh, New Westminster Jail. And um, she was escorted to his cell, and, and actually, it's not like the guards went away or uh, one of the people escorting her was the superintendent of police, 
Frederick uh, Hussey, and she asked him, you know, you know, did he do it? Because she had all along said, no, you know, she believed that he didn't do it. And he all along said he didn't. And at this point, right. he admitted that, yes, he had shot her, Marshall. Um, but he said, oh, but it was because of you. And she, you know, she was shocked, of course, uh, as mm-hmm. shocked as with the, and um, says, well, you sh- what do you mean because of me? Like, well, we argued over you. And she said, well, you shouldn't have argued. You should have just let it go anyway. And so the guards and Hussey heard this. And what Hussey does is he gets her into, uh, he, he was taking notes. He gets her into a, a side room. And he has a statement uh, that uh, of of what they had just said that that um, Strobel had told told her Elizabeth that he had shot her and so and he gets her to sign. Hussey gets her to sign the statement. Right. Um, right. So you know it's it's a it's a confession. Yeah. Um, and then a number of <laughs> he confesses to a newspaper reporter. He confesses to to his lawyer, uh, they try to get it all, you know, Morrison tries to get control of this, but it spirals out of control. He eventually confesses to Hussey. Each time he, his story gets, though, uh, he says he shot uh, um, Marshall, um, but it was because they had had a fight, and Marshall came at him angry, and that's why he shot him. So it was like self-defense is is how he, he was arguing with his, in his, these confessions, but they were confessions, nonetheless. They were saying something that he had denied for nine months. Yeah, he he had said that uh, Marshall said something derogatory about Elizabeth, and so then that was the argument ensued, and this and he was enraged to the point of murder here. But uh, mm-hmm. Morrison tried to do his very best for a client that he felt was innocent. And then I think a, a client that he felt didn't get a fair trial because of the judge's behavior and and the missteps by his own client itself. But to no avail would he keep his mouth shut. So he really <laughs> couldn't be helped at all. And there really wasn't the really there wasn't even though he had a hearing about this evidence. It really it would it didn't make any difference in this, did it? People lost all kinds of sympathy for him, believed he yeah. was guilty. Yes, yeah. As soon as the confession came out, the support for him completely evaporated. Um, you know, mainly because he had been he he had been so adamant that he hadn't been there at all that night, yeah. um, and so people who had supported him. Now say, well, you said you lied. You know, we don't care, in a sense, now that you change your story completely, that you actually did kill him, whether it was for self-defense or not, you lied. So all, all of that public support for him vanished. Um, and there was this hearing, but in a lot of ways it was an improper hearing. There was no public, at the time, there was no avenue to appeal a conviction. There wasn't an appeal court. There was an, they could, you could make an appeal on a point of law, but there was not, none of those in the case either. So 
strobe thought, okay, well, that didn't work. I, you know, my, my, uh, being a, saying it innocent didn't work. Now, if I confess and just explain that, you know, then they'll, they, they'll either let me go or they won't execute me. Well, there is no provision to let him go. There's only one thing left that would save him from being executed. And that was that every murder conviction was sent to the, the Justice Department in Ottawa. And they had, the cabinet had to approve it, and the governor general had to approve it. Um, and it was at that point, all the information was sent to them, the trial notes, all that stuff. And they had the power to commute the sentence to life in prison or to let the, the um, sentence stand. That was the only avenue he had at that point. And he didn't, I mean, you know, he's not a lawyer. He didn't understand that. He still thought he could talk his way out of it. But um, there, was, there were no provisions, you know, to, to go, even, even with what we would see as the flagrant violations in law. At the time, they weren't, because there, were no, there was no law and there had been no case law. To, to say, well, this is the way defendants are supposed to be treated when they're in, in the, the, the witness box. You, this is the law, this is the new law, you can't use a transcript from a previous, you know, and, and Morrison's argument, which actually was quite a good one, was that Strobel's testimony from the first trial was voluntary. He didn't have to make it. You can, and he argued you can't use that in this this trial, but he was overruled. So there there was no question of law, and it, it, there were there was no avenue to appeal. Right. This has been uh, very fascinating talking about the trials of Albert Strobel. Needless to say, his. Uh, his protestations uh, didn't work out, and he was executed. Um, I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about the trials of Albert Strobel, Love, Murder, and Justice at the End of the Frontier. I know this is a Caitlin Press uh, release, um, caitlinpress.com. Tell us um, how they might find out more information about this case and find out more more about this book. Um, Well, find out more about the book is, is, is you know, buy it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have to put that plug in. <laughs> uh, it's available on Amazon, on Indigo, um, uh, probably the public libraries will, I, I know that the Toronto Public Library has ordered a copy or two. I don't know about the, some of the others there. Um, Indigo, of course, connected through Cole's books. Um CaitlinPress.com. It has a, a basic description, yeah, of uh, of the description of the book and and the, the blurbs on the back, and you can see the cover and that. Um, so if, if if viewers want to uh, go there and, and take a look at that, um, and like I say, I mean it, it's available um, for ordering and and any of the you know the the major uh, the major online store places. Absolutely. 
Well, I want to thank you very much, Chad Reimer, for The Trials of Albert Strobel, Love, Murder, and Justice at the End of the Frontier. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a great night. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night.